collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system, and each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. So I have not seen you since we were studying Black Reconstruction on the uh, desks of Temple. Yes. And uh, it's really good to see you, man. Good to see you, too. Thank you. It's got to be almost 15 years. Just about. So how are you? <laughs> Doing good. You know, Rita, as you were talking about before we went live and recording that the, the pandemic is creating an opportunity for you to slow down and just kind of pause and reflect. In many ways, I've been engaged in the same kind of a similar process. Over the course of past several months and since, you know, the world has shut down and begun to look and act very different than it has, I found myself, let me back up, before the pandemic, it was clear to me, I had become convinced that due to climate change, due to the various natures, the, the specific natures of the various political and economic crises surrounding us, which I assume we'll get to later if we need to. Capitalism as a system could not continue to reproduce itself. And that historically, when an economy can no longer reproduce itself, it goes into terminal permanent decline and something new has to merge to replace it. And I've had an understanding of capitalism as a profoundly inhumane, unloving system that provides human beings with very few opportunities to discover that we matter, to discover that we have any worth. And with the decline of capitalism and the emergence of something new, there's the potential for us to collectively create and facilitate the emergence of an economic and social system that is dignity-affirming and sustainable. And so, Rita, I've had that intellectual understanding for a long time. When this pandemic hit, I realized <laughs> that it was no longer an intellectual understanding. We were being forced to choose as a world between economic growth and human survival. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me, I said, oh, wow, I have some grieving of the old world to do. And I have some growing to do to grow into myself in a way that will, I've been saying it like this in meditation. This is a period where human beings have the potential 
for human beings to embrace being restored to sanity becomes a real willingness to be restored to sanity. You know, I assume a responsibility for doing that. Rita, that means I got to act right. It means I have to behave sanely. And so I'm good. And similar to you, the pandemic has given me an opportunity to reflect and gain insight and growth into the various ways in which a socialization process that is patriarchal, capitalist, and white supremacist has stunted my growth and impeded my ability to live life as the spirit that I was blessed with at birth. And so I'm good, very uncomfortable, because that's not a comfortable process to be in on a daily basis, especially when it's so, rightfully so, I don't want to be critical of that, to be caught up in the urgency that I feel as a human being as the world is on fire, the urgency to act and do the right thing. And so I'm very good personally, despite the fact that the world is a dumpster fire, in the relationship between myself and the larger world, there's a lot of spiritual growth and, and mental health commitments that have to be honored so that I can be an effective and useful human being. And I'm grateful that you're honoring it. So are the people around me. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. I'm grateful to see you well. And your mind, I can see, is just as sharp as I remembered it. Oh, thank you, Probably Rita. a little bit more. <laughs> thank you, Rita. Thank you. And I think what's beautiful in this kind of a re-meeting, right? Mm-hmm. We didn't actually have a prep conversation before today, right? So uh, it's literally there's the joy of having seen you after 15 years right now. And yeah. what I'm present to is also the love, right? Mm-hmm. Like the love and the healing of self and of others that you must have done mm-hmm. along the way. As you say, the world is a dumpster fire, which I couldn't agree with anymore, there's also a sense of peace and joy mm. that I see in you, just in, in your expression and the way. So right before we started recording, I was saying to you how one of the major questions I've been in in the past few months has been, as someone who's been studying racism for 25 years, but is in everyone's mouth in a specific kind of way, like I find in a very uncomplex way. And it's a very simplified angle is my experience. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I, I was saying with you that, you know, the this country is ripped for white people. This country is really freaking racist. Mm-hmm. The first encounter is, oh my God, I'm really ignorant. Let me go read a pile of books about this. And you and I were in that space 25 years ago and or 15 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know when your journey started. My journey started before I mm. So I guess my question is, as you think about that journey and you think about where you are now, what do you see? I can see your wheels are turning already. So I'm just going to stop there.
Well, Rita, I'd like to share a little bit about my experience, if that's okay with you. As a kid, very young child, I grew up, you know, I'm originally from Kalamazoo, Michigan, which is a small city. I don't know if it's ever had more than 100,000 people. And I, I was born in 1979, I'm, so I'm 41. And as a child, I remember dinner table conversations about all the factories closing. And so I grew up in this period of deindustrialization and I grew up in a neighborhood that statistically was probably one of the most racially mixed neighborhoods in the country. The North side was all white. It, it, however, right, practically the North side was all white and the South side was all black. I grew up on the first white street. So I grew up on the edge of, of the black half of the neighborhood and the white half of the neighborhood. And none of the white families around me had kids. And so I was a white kid in the homes of black families, you know, from the time I was four or five, six years old. After school, you know, my mother, if she wasn't around, I would, Mrs. Barnum, I would, you know, I would go to the Barnum's house and Mrs. Barnum would take me, to, if her kids were getting haircuts, I'd be in the barbershop with her kids. Before going to school as a child, I knew black people as human beings. Rather than as, you know, a racial character, I knew them as, as human beings. Before the age of seven years old, I knew the unbearable smell of chitlins before they're cooked. And with that, Rita, I thank God for that. Also grew up in a family where I didn't, what my family understood as practicing love was not something I was able to receive as love. And so I grew up a white kid who understood black people as human beings, but believed that I was profoundly unloved and unlovable. One of my first memories, uh, we, my, my mother and father were packing up the car because then my brother, sister, and myself were getting ready to go on a trip somewhere you know, a little family trip in the summertime. And my first memory is seeing them pack up the car and being scared that they were going to leave me wherever we were going. And they would have never done that. But in my child mind, this was what I was afraid of, which is my mother and father loved me and so on and so forth. They lacked the skills needed to convey to me that I was loved in ways that I could receive. And so I came up as this white child who believed he was unloved and unlovable, who along with deindustrialization came the crack era in high school, in junior high, I guess in high school, I had grown close to the street life at the time. I was no hardcore thug, but I was a nickel and dime guy on the corner. And I went to high school that was, I was probably 50% black and 50% white. And I ended up being one white guy in a crew. But let me back up. When I was in elementary school, I was like the one white guy at the lunch table who cracked jokes about each other's mothers and, you know, what sociologists call playing the dozens. You know, that was my childhood. And then in the eighth grade, I lost all my friends. 
And in hindsight, I understand that that was the period in which, at least locally, young Black boys began to be treated like Black men by schools, by the police, by institutions, and so on and so forth. As a 12 or 13-year-old, I just, you know, I, I just missed my friends. I didn't understand that. I got real involved in, in drugs and alcohol and all that stuff. And by the time I was 16 years old, I had reached a point on a social scale that was low enough where color really ceases to matter. And I uh, gravitated towards thugs and kind of hardcore criminals. And uh, we would go into stores together, be me and three or four black men. And I would steal everything because we knew security would follow them. We would go to school. I'd be driving a car with three or four black men in it. We would go to security and I would say, I got to take them to court and the gate would go up. Didn't nobody had no court date, but we knew these men were racialized in ways where their perceived criminality and my perceived whiteness meant that I could get away with, you know, murder and we could go under the radar. So I had this. And so, you know, I, you know, I couldn't finish high school. Like, I, you know, I left high school in the 11th grade and I was, I fled the state while awaiting trial for a crime that I committed. And I began to have a series of transformative experiences and, and began to behave in less antisocial ways. And I went back before the judge and got a suspended sentence. And I got a suspended sentence for a crime that I committed at 17 years old. And I think that same year, I lost three friends to gun violence, all of whom were black. And I lost another three, maybe five to the penitentiary. And it was not lost on me at 17 years old that my white skin played an enormous role in the fact that I evaded jail while the guys I grew up with were locked up. And so I got back into high school and miraculously I got into college and I took a class on, I don't know, ethnicity in America or something like that. And I was given a language to understand the reality of institutional or structural racism. And with that knowledge, I said to myself, I owe it to the guys I grew up with to contribute to creating a world in which their kids get the second chances I got and they deserved but were denied. And so I called myself becoming an activist. And I became an activist and on the west side of Chicago in housing struggle that it was trying to tear down the projects. And I was, I was who I was, a, I was a horrible organizer. Really, I couldn't organize a sock drawer. And I said to myself, let me go you back to school. Funny, though. It could be a stand-up comedian, though. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Tell you. I, I'm also a very good organizer today. I mean, I was really bad then. I'm also very good today. But I said to myself, maybe if I get more knowledge, I'll be a better organizer. And so this was what led me to Temple University where I met you. And I then developed a deep philosophical and historical understanding of white supremacy, a relationship between white supremacy and capitalism. And Rita, I literally grew to hate myself. I was so intellectually developed and so underdeveloped emotionally 
I remember saying to a good friend of mine, black woman, I remember saying to her, you know, I don't know if it's healthy for me to love myself because I don't know if anything white is worthy of love because of white people's legacy on this planet and so on and so forth. And I, I remember the look of horror on this sister's face. I'm like oh, like, oh my God, I have no idea how to respond to this. And so Rita, I became profoundly developed intellectually. You know, Walter Rodney would talk about how Europe underdeveloped Africa. And I can say my intellect underdeveloped my mental health. And so for many years, Rita, I walked around with this profound understanding of the structural world of race and racism, but hated myself. And as someone who hated myself, ever been around somebody who really doesn't like themselves, they're very hard to be around because they're just not very pleasant people. That was us back then, Matt. (laughs) I was right there with you. And so... You can't crack a joke for nothing. (laughs) It's just too serious. And so, Rita, at some point I grew tired of destroying relationships. And I began to heal from the inside out. And as I began to heal, my understanding of race, myself, and history became far more nuanced. I was able to understand and live in some gray areas rather than just black and white. Today, I kind of sit here seeing all these new people and I hear the political conversation around race. And I really what I mean is the political conversation at the grassroots. I don't pay much attention to what they're saying on CNN and so forth. But at the grassroots, I hear people making proclamations and declarations without having done much study. And in a way, that often leads me to wonder how much of what they're saying is personal wounds masked as political ideas. Preach. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if that answers the question. I didn't expect to say all that, but there it was. I see myself in your journey, like, so much. Hmm. What do you mean? In different ways, right? But um, I don't remember when I present to the fact and have the emotional capacity to handle my brain. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't remember what happened. I just remembered one day looking up to the sky and saying, God, whatever I thought God was at the time, because I can't remember when in my stage of spirituality it was, but like, please help me gain the emotional capacity to, to like handle what's in my head. Mm. And I think for me, in some ways, our experiences are tremendously different, right? So I grew up in the North Bronx, and I say North Bronx because I was taught to say North Bronx. Right, got to be South Bronx, right? right. So Italian and Jewish, 
Um, east. Yeah, okay. All right. So I think Home Parkway is east. So Italian and Jewish North Bronx, raised to always say North Bronx. And um, the only kids I knew were bused to my classroom. And I never asked myself the question why I never went to these kids' birthday parties and why they never came to mine, right? So the color line was there, but I didn't ask myself questions about the color line. And partly it took me moving to and then the UK as an exchange student from Italy to take mm-hmm. a class on race and start opening my eyes like i have to start opening my eyes I've already been studying like you know italian and european racism i was a sociology student so i was already studying italian and european racism for at least four years before i woke up to fact i had racism so in some ways different than your experience but what i remember was this just rush which is, sounds similar to yours of like oh my god there's this whole other world that I don't know, and I better like get educated, like now. And there was this rush of a few years where just back to back with anything I could put my hands on. And so when you talk about seeing people today who are entering this conversation newly, I see a lot of that. Like, let me just read whatever book I can get under my hands because I have to try to explain emotionally what's going on, this discomfort. And I'm hoping that the next book will mm. help me relieve the pressure in my body. And what we discover after having read literally like, you know, my first master's thesis had a hundred sources. My second master's thesis had 200, right? So after doing all of that reading, you discover like how could we as white people watch the level of dehumanization and the level of brutality that we have caused year in and year out? Like how could we physically endure that? How could we perpetuate it and not feel? Like how could we? That was the question I was in. And I never found those answers in history books, books. I never found the answers there. Yeah. Like I ultimately found the answers in Reiki. Mm. And what got me there was migraines, because after all that studying, surprise, surprise, I had permanent migraines. Talk about not pleasant to be around, you know, being around people in constant pain. Is is it emotional or physical for that matter? And despite coming from a family that on the surface was happy and perfect, you know, although there was addiction all over the way, there's addiction in families, which is very hidden. I don't think I felt my parents love. I realized that my parents actually loved me until I was probably 35. Mm, yeah. Like I couldn't, I couldn't. And I love that you said that you weren't able to receive their love in the way they expressed it. Cause I, I had no clue. Right. I was 30 years old before I was able to understand my relationship with my mm-hmm. family in the way I just mm-hmm. expressed it. Mm-hmm. And I'll add, 
sexual violence is the backbone of white supremacy. The commonality, the frequency with which white families tell children they'll disown them mm. is something I've never seen in families of color. And so I truly believe that if I didn't walk the line my parents wanted me to walk, I'd be out to like, there's this concept of social death of like literally if form if you don't you know do life in the order for a woman right like school you know then marriage then child like god forbid not in that order school job child, marriage child mm-hmm. right god forbid not in that order like you'll get disowned right. like there'll be a social death where you will be cast aside and nothing will ever happen to you again And I want to bring this back to capitalism Mm -hmm. because it's this concept that we have to earn our value. Like it's the backbone of it. I think for me, like I think about the white particularities of that. I find it very useful to look at the emergence of whiteness in Virginia 1670 something. Uh, I never remember the year of Bacon's Rebellion. 1676. Thank you, Rita. 1676. The last several months of 1675 and the first at least six months of 1676, Virginia is almost in a constant state of rebellion amongst indentured servants, enslaved Africans, indentured servants who are both African and European because the legal state of slavery had not yet evolved to the slave codes and so on and so forth. There are a bunch of unfree people, and I mean materially unfree, and they're, you know, they're burning towns in Virginia down. And, you know, Rita, I don't know if you've ever spent much time on a picket line, but I know whenever I have been involved in any kind of direct action, whether it be a a sit-in, a picket line, a demonstration, I experience a bond with the people who I'm involved in that demonstration with. Now, I ain't ever been a part of no six-month strike and certainly ain't ever been a part of a six-month-long insurrection. Now, if a two or three week campaign of direct action has built lifelong bonds for me, I can only imagine what the emotional experience of six months of sustained insurrection, I can only imagine the kind of bond that that builds between people. And so because we're talking about a nascent emerging capitalist economy, in which tobacco production figures prominently, the six months of stopped tobacco production poses a major threat to this emerging capitalist economy. And so the colonial officials in Virginia get together and say, how are we going to stop this revolt so that tobacco production can continue? And it's at this, it's in response to these contexts that the slave codes emerge and become law. And the 
status of a child gets associated with the status of the mother and whiteness emerges as a thing that essentially protects one from a lifetime of servitude and or enslavement. And so I can only imagine being a European tobacco plantation worker who has just been involved in six months of sustained revolt with my brother who happens to be African and say, man, they talking about this white thing, which means I can get off this plantation or I can continue to fight for my freedom collectively with my homeboy here. And now I don't wanna paint a brush that every white person shows whiteness because human beings don't behave like schools of fish. We don't all make the same decision at the same time and make these turns. We, human beings are individuals, but collectively enough white people made the choice to embrace whiteness at the expense of becoming and fighting for their freedom. That they entered what could be called a prison of whiteness who has at its roots the betrayal of other human beings who only became black because these Europeans chose to become white and thereby free themselves from plantation labor, but condemn themselves to a prison in which they conflated what it meant to be a human being with whiteness. And I don't know about you, Rita, but living with having betrayed people is not an easy thing to do. Like I said previously, I had gotten tired of destroying relationships and decided I didn't want to do that anymore. I know what it's like to not treat people well. And it's hard to live with oneself if I don't treat people well and don't have the courage and or space to honestly confront that and become whole and begin to show up differently in relationships than I used to. And what we're talking about in regards to whiteness and families and white family systems is we're talking about a people whose in some cases, whose whole identity, in other cases, the significant part of their identity is rooted in a fictional racial category premised on the betrayal of the humanity of people who struggled with them and themselves. And so I think that in part, the willingness, as you pointed out, it was not my experience, but as you pointed out, you know, white folks talking about they're going to disown their kids. There's an emotional numbness amongst white people that I believe is directly connected to the original premise of the emergence of whiteness and this kind of betrayal and neglect of other people's humanity and our own humanity that is then compounded by the fact, Rita, that you said, right, 
On the one hand, right, this whole choice to become white happens in the context of capitalism's need to keep production going, tobacco being produced. And then human beings are faced with the reality for the very first time in human history that their housing, their food, their clothes, most of their basic needs for survival, having access to them is contingent upon having money. And that's new for human beings. You know, human beings have been around for thousands of years. Capitalism has only been here for between four and 600 years. It literally represents on the conservative measure. Capitalism represents less than 1% of human history. And it is the only time where the basic needs for survival have not been guaranteed to human beings. And so I think that there's something psychologically particular about what it means to be a human being and develop a sense of worth or value under capitalism. And for white people, one of the places in which that sense of worth there was a place to find worth in identifying as white. And so in some ways, like I think about whether it's the crisis of white people's humanity, whether that shows up in white parents being unable or unwilling to express love within a family, or it shows up in people refusing to believe that the coronavirus is real and choosing death over reality. It is a result of the way in which, I think in the case of the coronavirus in in particular, that that source of meaning, that source of value or worth that whiteness gave to white people, it provides much less meaning today than it used to because we live in a world that is so uncertain. And as I said, The capitalist system that has organized our life for the last four to 600 years is in a permanent decline. And this is the first young generation that's going to do worse than their parents. Yes. So that's like, and that's not even the poor folk. Right. (laughs) Like that's even including the kind of millennials of well-off baby boomers, their children are still going to do worse off than their parents. Yes. Every highly likely. Yeah, yeah. And if I may say something, you've triggered something. I feel the urge to share. I think that one of the things that is most profound, and this is really what, getting back to the question you raised about new people learning race and so on and so forth at this moment, And Rita, although I do believe that they've not read enough, that they've not studied enough, I do have questions about how long folks will stay active and stay in the streets. I think the significance of Black Lives Matter is not what the movement does today, but what it actually is, is that across a generation, of multi-raced people, and literally across the world at this point. There is a generation of human beings 
who believe that black life has value. And that is a fundamental break with what it's meant to be a human being over the last four to 600 years. Because under capitalism, no life has value. There are lives that are valued less than others. But if you look at the auto industry in 1964, for example, more auto workers died in 1964 from industry-related diseases than people died in the Vietnam War. So how do we build collective power in a way that is stronger and faster, right? Because in some ways I hear you say the very fact that we're talking about humans is a build power, goes against a system that diminishes the power of yeah. human beings and, the, and the, diminishes the value of life, Yeah. right? Yeah. But in the face of an economic system that feels so rigid, right? I love how you said it's just 1% of human life. And yet it feels so rigid to most of us. We think we have no power over it. So then what? Do we have power? That's a beautiful question. And I don't think we do. If I may, I spent a great deal of time studying the revolutions of the 20th century and on a world scale that is. And arguably only Cuba doesn't end up resembling what it said it opposed. So the Russian revolution, the Chinese revolution, the Vietnamese revolution, the African revolutions, the Indian revolution, all of the anti-colonial revolutions. What that says to me when revolutions begin to resemble what they initially opposed, when they all do, what that says to me is that there's a pattern here. What might we learn from this pattern? And I think that one of the lessons I've taken, I mean, I don't think, I know one of the lessons I've taken is that capitalism is a global system and always has been that is so, that historically has been so powerful that even whole movements and countries that oppose it end up mimicking its logic. And I say that to say that for me, the question of building collective power, I one wanna say, what do we mean by power? Because I think that what we've met historically by power, political power in the streets and revolutionary power, is important, but it's not the kind of power that is going to bring forth a world in which black life matters and nature matters. Won't bring forth a dignity affirming sustainable world. I've been working with a handful of groups in Detroit. One of them is Freedom Freedom Growers. They are an agricultural collective on the east side of the city and they are growing food to support their east side neighborhood. And they're doing it in a way that is sustainable. It's not about capital accumulation. And perhaps most significantly, it is connecting people to the creative capacity to create things. I think also in Detroit, there's an organization by the name of Solidarity, which is literally installing solar powered streetlights 
and creating a new sustainable energy grid in the city. There are other groups, for example, one of which is, might be called the Detroit Safety Team. There's a, the Burwood Community House on the west side who are coming together to practice conflict resolution at the neighborhood level so that the, when inevitable conflicts arise at the neighborhood level, whether it's about theft, whether it's about drug dealing, whether it's about a late night party, whether it's about somebody, you know, just being disrespectful, they don't have to call the police. They can instead resolve the conflict at the neighborhood level. And if you don't have to call the police, the police don't come and therefore police brutality won't happen. And I mentioned these, there are lots of projects like this all around the country and the world, but I mentioned them in Detroit because I think that what I see there in these various projects, including things like the James and Grace Lee Boggs School, the D-Town Farm, a whole bunch of organizations, there are a network of organizations, projects, and practices that meet people's basic material needs for food, for electricity, for heat, for conflict resolution in a way that supports people in becoming more fully human rather than becoming alienated from each other through a monetary exchange. And so I say that to say, Rita, that I think, and I'm convinced, that the kind of power we must have to transform the world is a power that we have to create. It's a power that comes from within and is magnified by human partnership that is exemplified in creating projects that meet our material needs for survival today while connecting us with our ability to create the white supremacy, capitalism, and patriarchy have beaten out of us. And so I mentioned Detroit because in the three of those projects, if we see them in connection to each other, there's a vision emerging for how human beings might get our needs met and live with each other that's very different from the vision we've known and, and experienced over the last 400 years. I love this, Matt. Thank you, Rita. I, I love that you're weaving this piece that for me is so essential, right? That the frameworks are important for us to be clear about what's going on and for us to see the patterns, like know the patterns of the past, patterns of the past come back, recognize new patterns when they do show up as new, call out the repeated patterns when they look new, but they're not really new. We see a lot of that happening right now. Yeah. And love has to be the foundation of all of it. Talk about it. Yes, indeed. Right, like if the love component isn't there and if we can't be human either, calling out, calling out so that we can feel superior and better than everybody else, then we're not gonna create something different. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
So I'm, I'm really grateful to you for that reminder. I'm really grateful to you for being a white man with that kind of heart. Because <laughs> uh, I got news for you. There ain't a lot of you around. Um, uh, I mean, to be fair, Rita. With I, all the journey that it has taken you to get there. Yeah. Right? Like with all the journey, all the bits and the pieces and the nooks and the crannies. Yeah. Um, but you bring a tremendous Thank you, sis. This has been a real pleasure. I, I, yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. It is making a commitment to love and understanding that, that love is not a feeling. It might be a feeling. Um, it might be an emotion. But when I talk about committing to love, what I'm talking about is committing to a kind of practice of thinking of others more than myself and then showing up in relationships with them in mind more so than myself in mind. Any other last thoughts and how can people get in touch with you? No, I just want to say thank you for, uh, for asking me on the show and, and for this very nurturing conversation. Thank you very much, Rita. I, I really appreciate it. I work with an organization called Visionary Organizing Lab, which folks can get in touch with. They can follow it on Facebook, it's Visionary Organizing Lab. You can follow it on Twitter at Visionary underscore Lab. I very seldom use it, but I am on Twitter at Birkelyn, B-I-R-K-L-Y-N, the number one. And so folks can get a hold of me in any of those ways, but the the work of the organization, the Visionary Organizing Lab is more important to me. So, you know, check out the organization. Thank you, Matt. And uh, again, it's really, really a pleasure and an honor to be with you and see you and to discover that as far away as we've been, our paths have been somewhat in parallel. Yeah, that's really dope. So. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Yeah. All right. Take good care. And I'll be in touch with you soon. Thank you, Rita. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming Medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic.